Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education for the scam that it is. I am Kevin Prenneville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now, I love my country, and I love its people, and I love the fact that our forefathers were forgers of a new type of nation. We're able to live as we please. Men and women who can exert their God-given free will to shape themselves as they see fit. And a government that's uniquely designed to protect the rights of the individual and not itself. And to expound on last week's topic, I will explore the depths of political correctness and multiculturalism and their effects on our national pride. We'll start today by describing the creation of our nation and end with its beginning demise. This is the crime of the century. Not many people would remember the name John Winthrop. In fact, I believe he's been forgotten, especially by most of the students. And today, I had to wait 20 years before I knew the name. But I think his words, his experience, his reasoning should never be forgotten. Truly, I consider him the first American thinker. He gave birth to the idea that we are a different nation, with a different land, with a different philosophy, with a different outlook as to how everything should align itself. Now, he believed, John Winthrop did, that we should at all times keep the Puritan society strong and in good social standing. Certainly, we're the farthest thing from that, and I'm sure even in the 1850s, we were far from it. And I'm not advocating that we go back to it, but his understanding of not only the gospel, but its application was something to be idealized. And what he wrote about this land, specifically about Massachusetts, but something that can apply in all facets across all states, was that we were, as Jesus said, a city upon a hill. That we are the aspiration and the culmination of all things that we as humans aspire or should aspire to be. That we have the ability to take any man of any social standing, any woman, any child, anybody with an idea and create them anew just as our country is it a new nation, a new idea, a new world as it was in those times. And what I believe to be the crime of the century here and part of this massive Conspiracy, I suppose, against these ideas that we ought to or do hold dear. What this great crime is the unnecessary forgetting of these transgressions, uh, the unnecessary loss of great men, of great thinkers. Yes, he was writing in 1630, and yes, I know most of us can't tell you what we had for breakfast today, but if we understand where we come from, 
we as a nation, and this isn't limited to color or skin or whatever you want to detract from this argument, but if we understand where we come from, if we understand who we are, then physical barriers fall apart. If we understand what makes us so unique, and not the modern politician who says it's white nationalism or it's this or it's that or it's racially tinted or or it's about the rich or it's about the poor. That is doing a great disservice to who we are as a, as a people and only to me shows their detachment from you and I. We are children of the enlightenment. We're the only nation in the new world to be conceived wholly by enlightenment thinkers. That this new idea that perhaps God isn't just a being who exists to change the world, but, but perhaps he's the watchmaker and we are the players on the great stage, to use William Shakespeare. That we have the ability to create our lives for ourselves and not, not serve some, some sort of government. See, the new idea for a government was completely, not only untested for the time, and I'm going to fast forward us here to about 1775, 1776. I would hope that we remember what happened in those years. And the great understanding of government was that the king existed not just to exist, but he was a manifestation of God's will on earth. That for that nation, for that country, that government would take the laws that God had passed down and disseminate that to the people. Now, this also could mean that government officials, the king, anybody who was in power could be quite literally because the people were often beneath uh, the politicians' platforms when they spoke, but that the government regulators would be above the law, and that's partly where that phrase comes from, that, that they were somehow at, on a higher plane of thinking, of understanding, that they were somehow better than you and I, even though, unlike a deity or unlike someone who could interpret natural law or understand it in the way that God would understand it, like you and I, they, they're all dead. They're all human. They, at some point we will die too. We are not invincible. We are not deities. We are subject to natural law. And what this great country allows us to do is Though we have to give up some of our inherent freedom to each other so that we can enjoy the great liberty of peace of mind, and, that, and that's why the government exists. That's what our founding fathers really flipped the script in the sense that the government is not above the law. The government simply recognizes the law that's already in, the, in place from a natural scientific standpoint. And so... When you understand that, when you understand that, that, that laws are not arbitrary and laws are not limited to 
the people the, the the laws are not created by man laws are created by god and man only recognizes god's law then you understand why our government is so unique and can mold different generations because every generation every other generation has a different social acceptance different ideas of the future different ways of interpreting their own existence and our constitution which is nearly 300 years old our government can fit that and that's because it isn't grounded or rooted in some king's understanding of the world at, at his time but we must understand that we are our own in this country that as much of a, of a blessing as it is that we are so unique in the sense that we make our own destiny we must still be wary of those who preach community over the individual I'm not saying that it should be completely individualistic or or nearly anarchistic but there needs to be a balance and there's a perfect balance within the original writings of the Constitution and, and of our founding fathers the problem is when community becomes more important than the individual that is a violation of our rights that is a violation even of the writings of our Constitution and why our country exists that is not only a violation of those principles but also a contradiction as to why we exist now I want to take a break here so you can kind of decompress from what I've been talking about but while we're on break I do want you to th think about what our politicians and political leaders are are saying and how they are relating back to or are they not relating back to what our founding fathers are saying or to natural law are they preaching community or or some general idea over the rights of the individual so in the in the middle segment here I want to go over exactly how our schools and how higher education is actually transforming our country into something that it was not meant to be now I don't mean to depress you or to uh, have you start grabbing you know beer and cigarettes and guns and and hiding away in the hills that's not my point here my point is that we have a great ability because of the design of our government to fix this and generations before us have had issues I would say that the Civil War was certainly a, a generation that had greater issues than us certainly a rift there yet our country stayed together our Union persisted our Constitution as an idea persisted through a civil war and through many generational conflicts so we're not going through anything unique here perhaps there's different players and there's different ideologies at, at work here but there's no reason to say that this can't be fixed all I want to do is to lay out the issues here maybe not even give solutions I'm 
don't think I'm, that I'm that person for it. But I'm hoping that somebody out there is. And so I think the best place to, to, to start with describing kind of where our educational system is and why I even wrote these, this, this book and why it's so focused on the educational system and I'm thinking of doing a second edition later um, to expound on this. Uh, I think I focused a little too much on the financial side, but um, that's that's something definitely to be looked at. But the idea, and, and I want to, I don't know if, if you've seen um, some of the, the video that came out with our, uh, on the Constitution Day, the, the signing of the Constitution, the professors who were uh, shredding the Constitution. And now this was a ploy by um, a conservative group, Project uh, Viertas, I think I'm saying that right, where they went to some of the larger schools, the diploma mills, that, that kind of um, school, and students would wear a, a body cam. They went to students who willingly accepted and consented to this, and they would wear, would wear a small camera. and. <laughs> they would have a copy of the Constitution in hand and they'd go into an office of any professor and the objective of them going in there was to get the, the professor to tear up the Constitution to somehow expose themselves as not respecting or understanding why that document's in place. And the whole ploy was to use political correctness to expose this. So a student would walk in and, and uh, she did a great job. I, I'm not sure her name was given, um, so I'll just use her pronoun here. The uh, student walked in and, and sat down and uh, there was a lot of groups that were just handing out constitutions. They had somebody dressed up as the Bill of Rights and, you know, just having fun, hot dogs, barbecues, all that stuff. And she sits down at this office and, and she's not crying, but she's got kind of that tremor in her voice. And she says, uh, I, you know, I feel very insecure about the Constitution. And she started talking about how, you know, she feels as it's an oppressive document that's, that's against women and, and this, uh, I would assume, feminist professor starts agreeing with her. Yeah, you know, and, and she talks all about how uh, the Founding Fathers were, were evil and, and were, you know, put the document in place to oppress peoples of color and, and um, women and, and, and starts going on this tirade about how evil that document is. And the video ends up, the professor actually, and the student asks the professor, you know, how, uh, how can we make this better? And the professor suggests to shred the Constitution. And the video kind of solemnly ends with the professor dumping the Constitution in, in a paper shredder. And you can use all sorts of metaphors here and, and, and you know, the levels of irony that, that the professor, well, I believe in her free speech to express maybe her perceived displeasure with the Constitution, I would argue that she doesn't fully understand. If she talks about the Constitution as a document to oppress perceived minority groups or 
underprivileged peoples, then I think she's missing the point of the document. And I think while she's allowed to view the world as she does, and, and I believe she should, there's an issue with taking that right and telling somebody else to change how they view the world and to accept something that they don't believe in. And the issue here, I suppose, comes back to political correctness. See, the, the professor, well, let's, let's take her obvious uh, leftist bias out here. Let's take her, uh, and I'm assuming far left here, there is a lost segment of the left here, and I'm speaking from a conservative standpoint, obviously, but I do want to make it clear that I'm not against anyone who's on the left. There's a, there's a small segment in between the communists and, you know, the whatever other segment exists out there that believe in the Constitution and believe not in a Lockean sense that I do as a conservative, but as in a, in a Rousseauian sense. And we'll get into that in upcoming podcasts, maybe even a year from now. But they see the world just a bit differently, but they still understand why the Constitution exists. And like me, they'd still defend my right as well as their right and anybody else's right to free speech, most likely the Second Amendment, not always something that, that is defended, obviously. And the idea, though, that this professor, even removing her political bias, in today's society, and today's social norms was hamstrung. Can you imagine a student coming in and she's obviously upset by something and she starts talking about how evil the Constitution is and this and that. And The professor, if they took the side of the Constitution and the side of the, our founding fathers, who clearly knew what they were writing about, you know, they, they were geniuses and they really wrote the Constitution to design a country to be run by idiots and people who were not as smart as them. Um, but if this professor had taken the side of the Constitution and the student could have just gone to the, the dean or whoever would be higher up than that professor and said that the professor was, was, was oppressing them. Or, or in today's society, that would be fine to go above the person that you're speaking to and get them in trouble. I mean, I potentially could have gone that route in my own experience that I, that I, that I wrote about. Um, I didn't. I don't believe in doing that to, to somebody. I, I did grow up with a sense of values and a sense of morals, but what political correctness and multiculturalism do is take the moral standard of whatever, and I'll call it a host country for ease of, of, of language here. The host country or the country that, that imports peoples from all sorts of backgrounds, and we've been doing this for, for years, through forceful import or just simply through our, our immigration laws. And the people who, the idea of multiculturalism, and I spoke about this in the second podcast about Dennis Diderot, and I might go back over that again. I think I could do a better job, but... The point is they'll, they'll come over from wherever part in the world that they started from and they will, they should have the right to come here and uh, 
not adopt the understanding of the world that we have. And I can see how there would be some room for, for hypocrisy here in the Constitution that talks a lot about free will, and yet, you know, we're expecting somebody to come here and adopt our sense of the world, but you think about where they're coming from, and there are still many places in the world where women are beheaded for, for perceived infidelities, and in many rural places, like in India, you can still throw acid in, in a woman's face for denying marriage, and a lot of them are, are marriages are, are prearranged. And so we as Westerners, and we as a country, can't go there and even recognize some of the customs. It is a different world. And I can see how we would say, well, we deserve the same respect and our values should be accepted by them and we'll all live in this great Garden of Eden, but that's just not how it works. We, we go there, we go to the Middle East, we go to India. Heck, at this point, even if we go to Europe and we are so different, we're still ex expected to accept their view of the world and their customs and their ideas. And in fact, many of us do. Uh, you know, especially growing up in Massachusetts, a lot of uh, people who still believe it's 1968 and are stuck at Woodstock will go to India and they'll wear the headbands and they'll, you know, wear sandals and, and, and all that stuff and, and more power to them if they want to do that. But why then, when those people come to our country, are we expected to accept their customs? Their customs, which may be in contrast with what we've written and what we should believe as Americans. Because I believe that America is less of a nation of, pe uh, of people. So you think of, of, and what I mean by that is France has a strong nationality. They have an idea, you understand the French dialect, um, China. There's the Chinese persona. They have an idea of the world. They, they have a commonality, a common background, a common history, but we don't. And you can say that for almost any country except for the United States, uh, a nation of immigrants of all different backgrounds and ideas. And what's great about this country is that our ideas, and it, it, it's not based off, and the politicians that say it's all white nationalism and this and that, uh, they're lying. And they're using that as a ploy and as leverage from a far left stance to impose their will on others, which is against the Constitution. But the idea is, as a nation of immigrants, with all these different backgrounds and skin colors and nationalities and this and that, and all of the different minority groups that you can come up with in your head, we can all live together through an idea that everybody is their own man. See, less of a country and more of an idea. That's what America is. And that's why each generation with their own ideas can add and change and define what it means to be an American. But through our higher education understanding and how a lot of these professors who um, come from a standpoint, a radical Rousseauian, uh, Karl Marx understanding of the world where they want to impose their view of uh, class warfare and, and, and these uh, gargantuan, ar archaic topics that are... Uh, 
too big and too simplistic for their own for their own good and they want to impose that and redefine what it means to be an american that it's all about that we're building the new soviet union or, or whatever they want to call it and that's just not going to happen we have too many people here that that think differently and are used to being their own man i believe that that's just not going to work, and we're headed towards a, a collision point here, and that's what I want to talk about in the third segment, actually, is exactly where this is all heading. There's going to be a clash, and moderates will seem radical, and radicals even more so than they already are, and that our younger generation who doesn't or wasn't afforded the privilege that I was of, of being able to study our founding fathers and, and those who taught our founding fathers their view of the world is what they've been told and they're acting on that and that I believe is heading us into this politically divisive nature and and what we're seeing today so as we transition to the third segment here and as as um, we kinda cut into that I I kinda want you to think about everything that is divisive is that necessarily new I mean, heck, and just before the Civil War, we had senators punching each other in, the, in, in Congress. Certainly now, though, we look at it and it doesn't look like any of the senators are necessarily impassioned. you got a couple on both sides, but for the most part, they know what to say in their districts and they're, they're going to stay in power till they die and collect their 200 grand and their pensions. And that, to me, while well, we all kill each other over, over what they've said, that to me is not a recipe for success. So that's really what I want to talk about in this upcoming segment here. Welcome back, but uh, I think what's pertinent here is we are seeing the evolution of a country that doesn't know what it wants right now. And there's people on the left, people on the right, yelling and throwing stuff, much more so on one side than the other, but I'll leave that up for you to decide. And there's such a basic understanding, if you can even call it that, of, of history and historical events. Uh, you know, Trump is Hitler and he's this and that. And uh, to turn real people into boogeymen, to transitions from idea, ideas and principles, principles which... I feel because of multiculturalism and because of political correctness, we have lost. And now we're, we're fighting our political battles on the base of one side is some boogeyman and is going to come and eat your kids, and so you should vote for the other side um, because they're the good guys. And I don't think that there's ever a good guy in politics. Um, you look at even the conservative nature, obviously, in in um, conservative circles, there is there are bad people, um, and on the left, as much as they talk about sharing and caring and you know loving each other and all that stuff, if you don't conform, obviously, you are treated just as badly as some of the people that they demonize, and. I mean, I certainly went through that for much of my high school career when I was learning about politics and 
trying to form my own conservative belief. I mean, uh, you know, I once failed a course and I got a nine. Um, not anything more, not anything less, a nine. And I, though I don't believe in it now necessarily, I did defend the death penalty and I defended the Second Amendment, which I very strongly, especially now, believe in, that because we are a nation that is so much centered on the individual and the individual's connection to God or nature's God and the individual's connection to those around him, our own gardens, our own communities. The Second Amendment is not a need for hunting or whatever. The Second Amendment is for the individual to be able to defend themselves against those who seek community over individualism. And the reason I... That was part of the reason I was defending the Second Amendment. Um, Some of my arguments I I know I could have gone back and changed, but I'm 16 at the time. I still don't know how the world works, and I sure as hell didn't back then either. And, uh, man, that that teacher did not like it. And uh, with uh, the Second Amendment, I think I was one of three people on on the side defending it. Uh, it was probably one of my proudest moments just to know that, that I knew who my allies were and who my enemies were very, very clearly. And that is something that we don't necessarily get in modern politics. But the reason that certainly I was given a nine in this course um, was for my beliefs alone. And that is some of the pressure that our students get. And so when you wonder why, um, and much what I talked about in the second segment, um, that, that, that students or the younger generation believe in a certain ideology, a certain un, have a certain understanding of the world that is not necessarily rooted in anything that is successful or even reasonable, that is not... Uh, as not based on empirical evidence as our founding fathers took their ideologies and designed them around what they could observe in nature. Rather, we understand the world now in higher education as, as I mentioned before, class warfare and minorities being oppressed and, uh, you know, good guys and bad guys. And it's, it's simplistic, frankly. And so naturally in a, in a community and a mindset that is about the community as a whole and how well the community is doing. And if one person is sickly, that doesn't necessarily mean that the community is uh, is well. That means the rest of the community is sick and needs to be mended. And the only talking head of that community is what would have been in the, our founding father's time uh, a king what we would call a, a dictator. And there's a difference between kingship and dictatorship, but we don't have the time. And frankly, that I, I think that would bore you, so I'm not going to go into that. But a dictator who, and, that, and that's partly where the name comes from, who speaks for the masses, speaks for the community, speaks for this and that, doesn't necessarily have to conform to any natural law. They are the law. They they are the embodiment of the community, and that's the problem. And that's why our founding fathers 
have the Second Amendment in there and why it's clearly in level of importance is listed second under freedom of speech. And like they did, I believe first in the freedom of, of speech and I will defend even those who don't agree with me, I will defend their right to speak. I don't think that they should be silenced, but their right to speak is only possible by their right to defend themselves. And uh, I'm surprised many of those on the far left don't take what Lenin said, which was, you know, 100 men without a gun can be controlled by one with one. Um, obviously, it's... Uh, a, metaphor for the government control of of the people and what reminds me of Patrick Henry and a lot of our founding fathers is we talk so much and especially Patrick Henry and and uh, his he's a man that I admire in his ability to speak to generations that are far beyond, you know, his lifetime. He speaks to us. He he will speak to our kids and, and and their children's children. And those words, so long as we understand who we are as a nation, will never be forgotten, or should never. And he speaks of of the the individual, not as some sort of idyllic uh, anarchist of the of the eighteen fifties, but as a principle and the idea that that our our freedoms do they begin and end with with the government or do they begin and end with a natural law and a natural law that allows the individual to defend themselves and he spoke very eloquently especially to right now in our debate with the second amendment spurned on by the elites and i would argue a lot of people in higher education and he said is peace so sweet that it can be bought at the cost of chains and slavery is is safety is what he's arguing here is safety do we value safety over our freedoms now obviously in an individualistic society there are going to be bad apples just as in any society but we have a country that allows us to deal with the individual, not the community. That if one person is bad within a community, it does not reflect on the community, but rather the individual. And now it took us years to actually embody that, but we're here now. So rather than go back and say, well, we never adhered to, adhered to that when we had slavery and this and that. Well, we don't have slavery now. And... We don't have prohibitive laws now. We are at a point where we can embody that, yet we choose not to be because of what we're taught. And again, and in the words of Patrick Henry, is that because it's, it's what the gentlemen want? And in our terms, is that because it's what the elite want? Do they want us to move towards a collectivist society? Do they want us to move away from the individual? Of course, if we are a collectivist society, the consolidation of power is a lot easier because the individual is a grain of sand because the individual is like a, uh, a handful of sand on a beach and you can toss it into the water, you can step on it, you can grind it into the ground. It doesn't matter. You don't matter. 
your existence is only to serve a dictator or someone who is in power. And we have gotten so used to, and I think what has actually come to become a detriment, we've gotten so used to being able to say what we want, being able to behave as we please. Now we think that we can impose that on someone else. And the idea of America of being a place where where somebody can worship and see as they as as they please has now become an idea where yes you can worship as you please and and view the world as you please so long as it agrees with me right i mean that's how we all think that's how i think i wish everybody saw the world as i did but that's a wish because it can never be a reality and the ideas that were started 250 years ago, nearly 300 years ago, are so relevant because it's not an idea of a nation rooted in a king or in a simple history, but a nation and a collection of ideas that are rooted in the individuals and the collective right of all of us to live by God's right. And he, I truly believe, and, and as did Patrick Henry, who's getting the spotlight here for a very good reason, the only way we could defend the city upon a hill that, that we talked about with Winthrop in the very beginning, the only way that we can see ourselves in, in the mold that we are meant to be and the only way that we can truly express ourselves is through individualism. And... I want to finish with with essentially Patrick Henry's uh, final statement that I don't know what course others will take. But as for me, liberty is so sweet. Give me liberty or give me death. Now, I believe in the ideas of a traditional America. I believe... In, in, in the Constitution, I believe all of our, both our founding fathers and those who came before them understood the world in such a way that you can truly view it as your oyster and life is what you make it. But we're losing that, I feel. And I, I, I fear that the younger generations who have been told from the time that they were born until the time they leave their nearly government-mandated higher education that you, that we've been told there's no opportunity in the world. We've been told that, that you go to school, you go to office, you die, and, you know, somebody gets rich off of you. We don't realize the freedoms that we have to go make our own living, to then be able to take what we've earned and waste it, as some do, and lose it, or as others do, reinvest in somebody else's future and multiply it. That is a freedom awarded to very few, but in all 50 states, in our territories, it's here. But we are allowing ourselves to lose it because of what we're not understanding. 
So I hope in the ensuing podcast that I will continue to describe exactly how I see the world and why this is the greatest country, not only because of the freedoms we're afforded, but because even though we're losing a great understanding, uh, we're losing the ability to comprehend why we exist, it's not lost. Maybe it's some sort of tidal wave and some pipe dream that we can reverse it, but I don't think so because there's been historical precedent in this country that we can change it. So I don't mean to be all gloom and doom to, to depress and turn off listeners or viewers, but we are in a dire situation, but we're in a fixable situation. So in the ensuing podcast, that's exactly what we're going to go over. And I hope that this message gets across. This has been the crime of the century. And I will be back every week, Wednesday at 1030, to further explain and understand why this is the crime of the century.